Welcome to our podcast, where I, Keely Severson, Eric Johnson, and Alicia Swamy are exposing mold. Today we're going to have a talk with Eric and Alicia and myself about mycotoxin testing, mold testing, talk about some of the things we might be able to see or find with mold testing, and some of the things that might not be identifiable with mold testing. We are sponsored by My Myco Lab, and that is a lab that offers blood antigen serum testing for mold-injured people to see if their immune system is reacting to mycotoxins. And we were talking about some of the benefits of the test and some of the things that the test wouldn't be able to show. So if your IgE or IgG immune system is reacting to mycotoxins, that would be a, a blood test that may show it. But Eric was explaining something really interesting to Alicia and I, and that is that stachybotrys well, I'm Eric, why don't you explain it? You're the you're the smart one here. This podcast is brought to you by Michael Rubino, the Mold Medic, and All American Restoration. The first and only mold remediation company in the country specializing in remediating mold for people with underlying health conditions or mold sensitivities. They've quickly become the most recommended remediation company from doctors and mold inspectors nationwide. Check out our show notes to pick up your copy of Michael Rubino's book, The Mold Medic, an expert guide on mold remediation, or visit allamericanrestoration.com to get your home assessed and get your health back on track today. This podcast is brought to you by My Myco Lab. Are you sick and tired of being sick and tired? Have you gone from doctor to doctor, had lots of tests, tried many supplements, medications, vitamins, and still feel awful? You and many others like you could be suffering from exposure to molds and mycotoxins where you live or where you work. My MycoLab is the only blood test available that tests immune system reactivity to mycotoxins. Visit MyMycoLab.com to order your test today. There's a famous story that was told by Nikita Khrushchev when he was in the um, Soviet effort to um, support Stalin's war efforts. The uh, Soviet cavalry horses were dying of a mysterious illness and nobody could figure it out. Due to wartime shortages, they were feeding the horses really contaminated moldy hay. Finally, Stalin was so frustrated, according to Khrushchev, that he was going to line up all the horse handlers and veterinarians and people associated with dealing with the horses, put them in front of a firing squad if they didn't figure out why they were dying. And they quickly found out that this toxic black mold on the hay was poisoning the horses. And that led to the discovery of Stachybotrys and Fusarium. Uh, Even though Stachybotrys had been identified and speciated many years earlier, they didn't really know what toxic properties it had. Some people had been sort of anecdotally becoming ill by handling moldy hay, but apparently not enough to get anybody's attention. So this uh, incident with the cavalry horses really brought focus on the toxicity of, of stachybotrys, and the Soviet researchers started studying it. Naturally, uh, anytime you come up with a really interesting toxin, you want to see if you can turn it into a biological weapon. The researchers were stripping the toxins out of the stachybotrys. I don't know what solvents or how they managed to do this, whatever chemists do, but they purified the toxin and found that it didn't have the desired effect, that the spore and the fragment was part of the 
process that the uh, effects of the toxin alone were somewhat transient and most of the test animals survived and recovered. Whereas if the entire spores and fragments were incorporated into the testing, it caused severe pulmonary hemorrhage, which is the same thing that was seen in the uh, Cleveland sudden infant death syndrome investigated by Ruth Etzel. It seems that the associated spores and fragments are just as necessary to the pathogenesis as the mycotoxin itself. Now, this was discovered back in 1943. Cheryl Harding did a study in 2015 where she essentially discovered the same thing, this time in addition to just telling the difference between the spores and fragments that were necessary to complete the full effect on the, the test animals. She actually exposed animals, mice presumably, to spores and fragments that had been stripped of all toxins. So it was just the skeleton itself, and this caused pulmonary hemorrhage. So under the circumstances, knowing that it's necessary to have the structure, the non-toxic elements of the spores and fragments, along with the mycotoxin, this tells us the mycotoxin testing can't possibly be accurate because it doesn't reflect whatever damage is going on. If you had pulmonary hemorrhage and wanted to measure this by looking at the amount of stachybotched trichothecenes or uh, satrotoxins in the blood, it wouldn't correlate, obviously. So this tells us straight off the bat that mycotoxin testing is unreliable. It's missing a major part of the problem. And even though it can be indicative of exposure to mold, you cannot use testing to correlate whatever severity of illness you're looking at to the levels of mycotoxins in the blood. So it might be helpful if you're trying to look for mold illness, but there's also many situations where it might not show while you are still sick from mold. Yeah, it could actually work against you. In showing that mold's not making you sick when it really is. Exactly because the spores and fragments without the toxin itself that's being tested for. And because doctors don't understand that there's a lack of correlation, if they come up with a low ambivalent amount of mycotoxins, they're going to dismiss your illness and they're going to completely disregard the fact that non-toxic fragments might actually be tearing up your lungs. Eric, I'm curious, because if someone asked me this question at this point, I would be stumped. What would you say to somebody who is asking, oh, wait, I already know the answer. You'd say leave your house with nothing <laughs> and see how you feel. <laughs> I was going to say, what would you say to somebody? Because we see this all the time on the mold groups. We see people asking, how do I know if mold's making me sick? You know, so, so my question to you is for somebody who is having a hard time wrapping their head around mold possibly making them sick and is really fixated on that needing to see proof because they haven't had the experiences that we've had, what would you say? Would, you, would it be the mold avoidance recommendation? Well, yeah, that's the only reliable way. Back in the 1990s, when people started really paying attention to this, there were no tests. There were no mold doctors, no mold experts. So what people were doing is using their senses to identify the mold that was making them sick, and they'd get a sample of it, they'd peel it off the sheetrock, they'd put it in a Ziploc bag, and they'd take it to their doctor and go, this is the specific mold that's doing it. I know there's many molds. There's mold on oranges, on onions, on bread, on cheese. I mean, mold is in beer, and it's not that. It's this. It's this stuff in this Ziploc bag. And when they analyzed what was in the Ziploc bag, 
Stachybotrys kept showing up over and over again. So for a while, when the mold phenomenon was dependent upon people isolating it and presenting it to doctors, Stachybotrys got a really bad name. And then they developed testing and they said, well, we can identify molds. We can look at it through the microscope. We can identify this species and that species. And there are many hundreds, if not thousands of mold species. And we can test for all of them. And when they started testing for mold, all of a sudden Stachybotrys kind of fell off the charts. And researchers, doctors were saying, well, we find the maximum amount of aspergillus and penicillium. So that, that must be your problem. Well, wait a minute. That's not what people were carrying in to their doctors. So clearly the testing skewed the, the picture somewhat. It caused people to blame all molds in general when the actual experience, the anecdotal empirical observations of patients who isolated the specific mold was pointing at something very, very different. Carpenters are cutting up wood covered with aspergillus all day long. They're not dropping like flies. And yet teachers in a building with the tiniest little amount of stachybotrys are. So this testing has really served to confuse people, divert the issue, and take focus away from stachybotrys. And it may be because of this effect, something about stachybotrys in particular is doing exactly what Cheryl Harding is saying it's doing. It's tearing up the lungs, maybe creating a susceptibility opening up your defenses so that now when you inhale other things like formaldehyde, pesticides, diesel fumes, other mold toxins, all these things are getting into the blood because your defenses are down. And it may be that small amounts of stachybotrys, even the non-toxic fragments that they apparently cannot detect, are what's doing it. We don't know because they won't look into it. Well, that's just fascinating because it sounds like you just kind of explained a theoretical mechanism for multiple chemical sensitivity. Yeah, people with um, stachybotrys exposure, they all eventually complained of multiple chemical sensitivity, especially to formaldehyde. This caused Dr. Jack Thrasher to blame formaldehyde rather than the mold. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it seemed to me, I, I tried to explain that the levels of formaldehyde did not go up. It's off-gassing at the same rate that it was prior to the mold growing, but people didn't complain until the water leaks and the mold got out of control. So clearly the mold appears to be weakening our defenses and leaving us susceptible to things that we wouldn't otherwise complain about, like formaldehyde. So what we really are in need of to prove mold illness, since none of the current tests can fully prove it, is some type of new, something new that we don't, that we don't yet have to fully determine it. I don't know if that looks like a test or an experiment. I really don't know what that looks like, because what would you look for? Would you look for the spores and fragments? I mean, we don't, we don't even have the, it, the verification of what damage they could be causing, because that's never been researched, has it? Well, we know that uh, stachybotrys exposure in particular causes pulmonary arterial remodeling. That's been tested, so that's a start point. We could look at that and try to find out if people with this type of arterial remodeling are more susceptible to chemicals. Mm -hmm. But you can see where the way experts leaped into the, the fray claiming that their tests were definitive actually served to cover up this phenomenon. 
This has been known since 1943, and yet our experts are out there saying, well, my tests are going to tell you whether or not you've got a, the right to say that mold has made you sick. And they were so certain of themselves that they completely overshadowed this phenomenon, which Forgax, who's essentially the father of, of mold investigation, wrote in um, the, the mold literature years ago saying, we don't know what's going on with this, but this is a phenomenon this effect of stachybotrys skeletons causing damage is a phenomenon that deserves elucidation. We need to look into this. Somehow, all these mold experts saw fit not to do so. So it sounds like we have to validate or retest Cheryl Harding's work about stachy skeletons. I haven't heard anybody challenge her on that. It seems to be a, a good, solid finding, and it does agree with what Soviet researchers found out so long ago. So probably that's enough evidence to proceed right now. I, I dredged up that uh, old cartoon with the dancing skeletons, the spooky, scary skeleton song. And I actually made a poster out of that saying, yeah, we need to look into the spooky, scary, stacky skeletons. But you know, it's like, it gets confusing because then you have tilt program who continue on with the whole MCS kick of, you know, the chemicals being the problem. And so that, that's Claudia Miller. Oh, sorry. Claudia Miller. Yeah. So the paths are so divergent all over the place, you know, and when you're sick, you don't really know who to believe and you start to succumb to one train of thought until you understand, no, that's not really it. But since um, you, you know, brought up Claudia Miller, she investigated a, um, a problem we had at a casino down at South Shore back in 1990, where a bunch of casino dealers got sick. The, the people in the card room all got sick, and they complained of a toxic sensation, and they were literally dropping like flies. I mean, something was coming out of the ventilation system in this um, blackjack room, and they pointed directly at the uh, ventilation and said, that's where it's coming from. We smell something like diesel. We smell pesticides, this horrible, toxic thing. And um, they got sick and did not recover. Big lawsuit over that. Their doctor was a chronic fatigue syndrome doctor. He was one of the few doctors at South Shore who was treating chronic fatigue syndrome. So for a while there, this was a suspected outbreak of chronic fatigue syndrome. Well, it turned out that they had a cockroach problem and they were mopping the floors of the kitchen, different combinations of pesticides, not just one, a whole slew of them. And as each one failed to fix the problem, they just kept trying another. So they wound up with this soup of different strengths of pesticides. But what intrigued me, this was in the kitchen. They were literally pouring this stuff on the floor in the kitchen and mopping the floor with it. But the cooks and the waiters, waitresses and waiters, all the kitchen staff, they did not get sick. It was the people in the card room, far away. What sense does that make? Well, these people were clearly ill, and eventually they, they got a settlement. The uh, casino didn't want to drop this because it made no sense. And they're right. It does make no sense. Well, it turns out that they had had a fire at this casino, and it had affected the upstairs floor, and the ventilation system needed a lot of work. I don't know exactly what happened with that ventilation system, but it seems to me that if mold was somewhere and it got into the, the ventilation system, that it was combining with the pesticide to result in the car dealers getting sick, but not the people with the highest exposure to the pesticide. So there again, we have the anecdotal model 
of the combination of mold and a chemical resulting in illness far beyond what would happen with the chemical alone. Unfortunately, when Claudia Miller investigated this, she decided to make up a new name for it. She called it Tilt. And when she presents this, it's as if it didn't have a prior name or any prior investigation. So the chronic fatigue syndrome researchers don't make the connection. Hey, this was a cluster that we investigated and called chronic fatigue syndrome and put the pieces of the puzzle together, which is very unfortunate. And that's why I talk constantly about the danger of renaming something because that's like setting the game back to zero and tossing out all prior work, just as was done with the mold phenomenon. Whereas if everybody pulled the efforts, put all the literature together, they would have known about the stachybotrys skeletons because this work was done back in 1943. So in science, everybody knows that when you're confused, you go back to the beginning, basic science 101. You put all the pieces of the puzzle together. And I think the main problem that we have to deal with is that researchers all wanna make their own discovery, be in charge, and they create their own new name and they do not cooperate. If we could just stop researchers from creating new names, starting the game all over again, they couldn't help but assemble the pieces of the puzzle. It would, it would, it would happen naturally. It's such a comprehensive situation because um, you kind of look at what is offered to us now in terms of, you know, how do we figure out what's going on with mold and what's going on with our bodies and exposures. And, you know, everyone is so quick to run to tests to validate what they're feeling or try to find a, a, a cause. You know, these tests do have a place in time. If you're seeking legal action or if you're trying to pull together some answers, but I think what Eric has always taught us is that you have to pay attention to your senses. And if you suspect mold is an issue, your instincts are going to help you more than any test or any supplement out there. As you say, of jumping to rely on a test, it actually removes your ability to make any new observations. Now, if you look at the original chronic fatigue syndrome cluster, the very first one, the Truckee teachers, the chemical that sprang to mind was the uh, copy machines, the toner, because the uh, teacher's lounge where all the teachers got sick, it was immediately adjacent to a whole slew of old copy machines, and they were just pumping out the fumes. Problem is that there's a lot of places where people are exposed to a lot of copy machine toner, and it didn't have this effect. So I said at the time, you've got to look at all the factors, look at how the students were tracking in mud and snow on the carpet, causing a lot of microbial growth right there in front of the, the copy room, and consider the possibility that the combination of these microbes plus uh, the chemicals, the, the copier toner, was having this effect. Because, I mean, you've got two variables right there in close proximity. It seems natural to put the two together. And this is in the literature at the time. It's even in the official abstracts calling for research into this phenomenon. But they didn't appreciate that the microbial factor is strong enough to look into. They looked into the literature. And at that time, mold was considered to be nothing more than an allergy. So they dismissed it. Well, what if mold is, is more than an allergy? 
What if it weakens your lungs in such a way that it threw the door wide open for that toner to, to get in there and damage those teachers? Over and over again, we see this combination of the mold plus different chemicals resulting in an effect that's far, far more than the chemicals are ever known to do. And each and every time, doctors can't find anything in the literature that explains why these microbes and mold in particular would be so damaging. So it's dropped. Well, here we've had a phenomenon, an observation since 1943, where it could damage the lungs in such a way as to open that window of vulnerability. And this is not being explored. So say someone is ready to go. They've heard our podcast. They're extremely interested in what you have to say, Eric. What is the foundation? Where should we start and what should we do in order to pave the way to find something that is a little bit more definitive? The only thing I can think of is to keep pressuring researchers into admitting that they aren't cooperating and they aren't putting the pieces of the puzzle together and hope that they do so. Because until that happens, they're not going to be able to even initiate a meaningful investigation. You know, what can you tell people who are uh, starting down this path where they, they would like to have a test and they want to know, they want to go to their doctor and get confirmation of this is happening. Unfortunately, if you look at all these examples of where this combination of mold and chemical has occurred and reported, and you read about the experience of the people in the six schools, it is clear that that testing does not exist. Only in the places where you get an extremely high level of stachybotrys do you get sufficient evidence to be convincing to a court or possibly your doctor or family or friends. But look how many times people complain of a, a sick building situation and the testing comes, comes back unequivocal. All these people are being left behind and the testing, their reliance on, on a test is working against them. Yeah, and I hear that all the time with people that, you know, they're sick and then they go get their home tested and then they say, oh, well, you know, my testing numbers were extremely low. You can't possibly live in a house with, without mold. Every house has mold. And then they're still sick and they don't know what to do or where to go, but they cling on to this belief. And even the some of the testing, like envirobiomics or whatever, I'm not sure if that's the, the ERMI tests, they'll sit here and have a conversation with you that if your, you know, your hurts me score is, is, you know, 10 or less, like you're in the clear and it's like, mm, that's not really what's happening to people, especially those who are hypersensitive. It doesn't matter. You know, you could have two, three, four, five spores. You can still be reacting to them. I think that's an important note to to really, really understand. And it's complicated by the fact that you could run into a plume of non-toxic stachybotrys skeletons, and this would open up the defenses in your lungs. It would damage your lungs, but it might not become immediately apparent to you until later when you inhale a chemical or you're driving behind a diesel truck or you sleep in a house that has a lot of formaldehyde and you go, wow, this place is killing me. What do you point at? You point at the thing that's bothering you the most, that you detect the highest in that environment, when maybe that's not what set you up for this problem. I found testing for me personally was most beneficial to validate to my husband and my family that I was sick. 
because everyone thought I was crazy because that's what the doctors were saying. But I did find a doctor that said, you know, at least test your home. And at least that provided me some value in terms of testing was to show that, yeah, even though there wasn't a lot of spores in my home, I was still sick and it could be a correlation. And that provided some evidence to at least get my family on board, get my husband to get me out of that home. Well, it might be that if somebody understands this phenomenon of how the skeletons, the, the basic structure of spores is still capable of causing pathogenesis, that if people around them don't believe it, and you, you know this and can talk about it persuasively enough, you might be able to go to your doctor, your family, and say, well, there is this phenomenon, there is this thing that could have damaged my lungs in such a way that accounts for my complaints. Will you listen to me about this? And maybe that would open a door for people who otherwise are not being believed because the test didn't find anything. That's true. That's a really good point. I'll try that on my son and let you know how it goes, you guys. <laughs> Just kidding. Well, you know, in that 1994 Proceedings book, uh, some volunteers who were concerned about the finding of stachybotrys and sheetrock, they actually inhaled it. This was back before they knew that stachybotrys was so toxic. At the time, you know, all that's said in the literature is it's probably an allergy. So they inhaled it experimentally and it kicked all of their butts. I mean, there, there was no doubt about it. It wasn't a matter of genetic susceptibility or toxic overload. They inhaled it and it kicked their butts. So there you go. So if you really want to convince somebody, give them a bag of stachybotrys and here, go huff on this for a while. Oh man, I feel like hopefully we don't get sued for, <laughs> for that. <laughs> this is not medical advice. I'm do not, not a doctor. Do not try this at home. <laughs> I feel like my son would do that and be like passed out with a bloody nose from a pulmonary hemorrhage and wake up and be like, it was just hot outside. That's why my nose was bleeding. Well, this uh, investigation has evolved from pointing out our anecdotal observations from the very core of a syndrome and how this awareness of the toxic mold has spread into more of a sociological study of why we can't get a doctor to look into basic evidence, not even when it starts a syndrome, not even when it's in the literature. It's like, what is going on with their heads? So yeah, this mold phenomenon, it's amazing, and I like to talk about it, but more so, it's like, what does it take to get a researcher to respond to documented evidence? Is it even possible? I don't even know how you're still going after this for as long as you have been. So kudos to you on that, because I feel like I probably would have burned out after the first three years <laughs> trying to get someone to look into it. I'm just really, really thankful that you continued because you're almost turning into like a Barry Marshall situation where, you know, these scientists come up with these revolutionary ideas and things for something. And it's just kind of the human process of everyone to just sign it off as you know, it's, it's a quack situation or you're a quack person. And then all of a sudden they're turning the corner. Even after what you said earlier, the, the OMF foundation started liking your, your comments and your posts. And you're like, whoa, this, this is a group that has been avoiding me for so long because I keep throwing mold into the mix with MACFS. So maybe we're turning a corner where there's just being so many people affected by mold. I mean, it's getting so crazy. It's like, 
every week there's a new story on how this elementary school, that college campus, this military housing, this celebrity, I mean, you know, there's a show on Netflix right now called Made that I keep hearing about that, you know, they describe a situation of toxic mold. It's like, it's such a known but unknown thing. And I think we're turning a corner where it's being, it's, it's impossible to ignore. Just absolutely impossible to ignore at this point. But at the same time, it's getting harder to draw attention back to old evidence because all the new experts are so eager to make a name for themselves and leap for positions of power and dominance and authority and appear as thought leaders that they just invent theories start throwing out all this information and if they're good at self-publicizing if they get a, a platform they overshadow work that was done years ago so that's why i point back to this um, observation by the, the soviets the original finding of saki Badras. this is such an amazing thing and this was known so long ago so maybe this will capture people's attention and they'll realize that um, this problem of new experts leaping to take control can actually wind up as a suppressive factor in preventing knowledge and awareness and progress in science. Something else comes to my mind when you describe that is like people who are trying to push forward and advance this and, you know, create testing or validate testing. It's like they have to be really careful with what they do, you know, even stuff with Congress and, you know, pushing for this bill and that bill, you really have to think about the way that you want to proceed with this because it can be used against people. Well, yeah, if you look at the um, original chronic fatigue syndrome outbreak, we had abnormal EBV titers and aberrant ratio of findings on an accepted serology test. This was the actual basis of why the the Center for Disease Control couldn't ignore us because these were solid findings. I mean, you you couldn't deny it. They were using the test themselves to substantiate the um, existence of a chronic Epstein-Barr virus syndrome. But then the experts got involved and they started applying this test to people who weren't in the same situation or had other viruses and just said, well, we find sick people with the same symptoms of the chronic fatigue, but they don't have this aberrant uh, EBV result. And thanks to their involvement, this abnormal finding, which was sufficient to cause the creation of a new syndrome, got dumbed down into, well, our testing don't find this result in everybody, so I guess we can throw it out. So it worked against people. The very testing the very thing that caused the creation of a syndrome was twisted around to become a weapon to deny the evidence of chronic fatigue syndrome. And here they've done the exact same thing with mold illness. It starts out, you look at a small population, a specific circumstance, and it is just absolutely solid as a rock. And then the experts get a hold of it and they turn it around into a means of denial and I think it's just as important to study this process by which experts can screw things up as it is to understand the phenomenon itself, because this is happening in other realms as well. Lyme disease, multiple chemical sensitivity, almost anything you look at, it starts out extremely good evidence, 
and you get outside researchers involved, experts throwing in their two cents, and before long they've made such a muck of it that you can't make heads or tails of anything. What I found really interesting was a recent article that came out yesterday, the New York Housing Authority bringing in experts, but then they're downplaying the state of the housing units. And, you know, it's one thing to have a test and then be told, oh, you have low score counts, whatever. But then you have these experts that are supposed to be experts coming in and they're purposely downplaying situations in order to save the bottom line of a property management company or whatever. It's just like the corruption is, is crazy. And even, even Keely, Keely, can you describe your situation when you were trying to find a microbiologist in your area? Like it's as if people are, are backing away from the whole mold testing. That was an interesting situation because I was renting and the landlord sent somebody in with his management company from a water, water and fire restoration. And they came in with a moisture meter and a UV light and they told me that the mold that I had just dug out from under our cabinets was actually dirt. So the landlord was protected by the management company. The management company was protected by the outside experts that they had brought in. Nobody had actually physically tested the substance. So I collected surface samples from the surfaces that I had uncovered, ran them through a building biologist who was not a microbiologist, which I later found out would probably have not stood up in court. But I was able to provide DNA evidence of the surfaces, which then put me in a position where I could say, this isn't dirt, this is mold, which then put me in a position to fight for proper repairs because they wanted to come in with a sealant and just cover it up. And I had looked at the label of that sealant and it would have been a violation of the federal label law because it didn't say removes mold from the house. So they were, they were misusing the product. And just that little tiny tidbit was enough for me. And luckily, because I had all of these exchanges in email writing, was enough for me to advocate for myself to get repair. But the kicker is the townhouse was still officially condemned because the landlord would not agree to repair the leaking roof. So either way, it still was an inhabitable house after all of that. Thank you so much for for talking about that, because this is this is the reality that people are living in whether you're renting or whether you're a homeowner, it's like, you know, we had Dr. Javen Moore on the other day that said, you know, we bought a $400,000 house and you have $200,000 repairs. It's, you can kind of understand why mold has been so muddled throughout the years because the damage it causes is so costly and no one wants to take the blame. Well, the other thing is that prior to the 1980s, this type of complaint was completely unknown. It wasn't even in the literature. Nobody was pointing at mold in the way that we are now. And when it emerged, people started pointing at stachybotrys. I mean, it really stood out. So is it possible that something fortified the structure of these spores and fragments in such a way as to make the constituent skeletons more pathogenic? That's kind of my thesis. Uh, Mold is, stachybotrys has a high water throughput. It's pumping a lot of water through there. Maybe something got in the water supply. Maybe something was feeding that 
that skeleton, something that made it more able to create this kind of damage to the lungs than ever before. And that's why the colonies that had the greatest water availability acted out so ferociously, whereas pre-existing colonies, because you know this, this mold has been around for a while, the mold that wasn't actively processing a lot of water, it seemed to retain the same value. It didn't get super pathogenic. So who knows? Maybe we could find out what's in the water, what's feeding mold something that's making it more powerful, recreate this condition, and, you know, do their thing with the mice and find out what's causing the pulmonary hemorrhage. It's a fairly simple exercise, so long as you know what you're trying to set up for an experiment. Anyway, it's yeah. a lot better to try to use science to solve this thing than to just go with the all in your head. Thank you everyone for joining us today. It was a interesting conversation about mold, mold testing, and we introduced stacky botrys spooky skeletons and how that can still affect the body even though it will not show up on testing. So we're really just calling out for anyone who's interested and anyone who really wants to look into this, reach out to us, contact us at exposingmold at gmail.com. We'd love to have a conversation. I'd love to think about maybe some studies in the future and what we can do to kind of understand this a little bit more. Please like, share, comment on our content. Also check out our gear on exposingmold.com. We are uh, running low in inventory. We'd love to sell this out, get rid of it, bring in some new cool stuff to offer you guys. We are going to be covering shipping, so we'll be offering free shipping. I will post that today. Um, and also check out our GoFundMe and Patreon pages to donate to keep this podcast rolling. Thank you again, and we'll see you next time.